It is remarkable, isn't it, that it's September already. Uh, we've seen the weather change. Um, in fact, I have a north-facing window in my office, and the sun beats in, and it gets so incredibly hot. In the last two weeks, I have to admit that I've been feeling kind of sick in the afternoons as the sun is higher and it comes more directly in. And uh, it never occurs to me to roll the blinds down. And th 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 then, I, then I go home, and by the time we've eaten and I'm kind of settling into things, and I, I get on the sofa and uh, have a book, uh, I have to put on a down jacket, and sometimes I have to pull up a very thick blanket because there's such an incredible contrast between uh, work and at home. And as I sit there under this blanket, I think, you know, why can't I just take some of that heat effect and bring it with me? And the answer is, well, we're really just not wired that way, are we? There are some things that just don't travel with us. There are some things that do in a small way. Um, for example, um, well, let's go with contentment. Uh, you, you have a holiday, uh, you have a week off, and you start to relax, and at the end of that week you think, you know what I need? I need another week off, because there's a limited amount of restfulness that we can store up. And for me, it tends to last until I have to face one of my fears. So for example, you go to the doctor and he pulls a needle out and all the contentment's gone. Um, go to the dentist and he pulls the uh, drill out and that's the end of it. And I have a fairly long list of things that bother me so, uh, you know, I mean, some people are afraid of heights. I'm afraid of heights and depths and width and length. Uh, afraid of being in crowds and afraid of being alone. Uh, talking to strangers, talking to my friends, the list goes on. There's a limit to how much I can carry with me in terms of that sense of peace and contentment. What about time? They say they can't take it with you, but what about time? I guess what I'm wondering is if you preach a pair of really short sermons, when you get to the third one, can you go really long? Uh, to balance things out, and today we might learn the answer to that question. <clears throat> but there are some things that we can take with us. Um, a mobile phone. You can take it with you. And I don't think we wait till we get into trouble and say, I really ought to go and buy a mobile phone. We get it beforehand so that we can take it with us so that we're forearmed for the day of trouble. I think something less tangible than a phone is a certain type of knowledge. We need to be forearmed for the day of trouble. And there's a type of knowledge that is not really gained in the moment of crisis. Now, things will be learned in the face of difficulty, but it's often true that it won't help as you face the crisis. And so we want to be prepared. We need to be forearmed. A few weeks ago, we talked about James and Jesus. And last week, we talked about Peter and Jesus. And we saw God deliver Peter from prison. Every door opened to him, the door of the prison, even the gate of the city, right up to the gate of the church. And that one didn't open so quickly. And I said I'd return to events at the door, with Rhoda hearing Peter but not letting him in. Uh, it's common for preachers to talk about her, well, her silliness. Um, it's even um, common for uh, commentary writers to say things about her character at this point, or at least the character of the text. So, uh, historian Yaroslav Pelikan suggests that it's difficult not to smile when reading this little anecdote. F.F. Bruce says that the scene is full of vivid humor. Longnecker speaks of Rhoda losing her wits. Witherington speaks of the comical touch of Rhoda being so overjoyed she leaves Peter standing at the lock gate. Sorry, that was a quotation. She's so overjoyed she leaves Peter standing at the lock gate. That's a comical touch. Kathy Chambers writes that the narrative demonstrates, quote, 
how Christian adaptations of comedic tropes challenge the dominant cultural construction of status and gender of ecclesial authority, slaves, and women. I'm sure that captures it nicely. <laughs> so what I want to do is consider the bigger context of Rhoda at the door. And the first observation I want to make is that sometimes the church is in the dark. We read in verse 5 that Peter's in prison and the church is earnestly praying to God for him. The church is praying. The church is earnestly praying. The church is praying earnestly for Peter. And while they're praying, God is doing things and they don't know about it. So what do they do? They keep on praying because in a sense, they live in the dark even as God is doing his amazing things. And so they continue to pray. And well, isn't that the right thing to do? There isn't really any question what they're praying for, and there isn't any question what they're doing. And sometimes God's servant is in the dark. So just as much as the church is in the dark, we find that Peter is in the dark. Chapter 12, verse 9 tells us, even as Peter is being rescued, did you, did you pick this up? Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Talk about being in the dark. Jerusalem's dark, so is Peter's cognition at this point. And that's uh, Luke's first reference to that. But Luke isn't done because he wants to make sure you get the point. So he adds, he thought he was seeing a vision. That's the second time Luke is telling us that Peter didn't really get what was happening. Now, Peter in chapter 10 was hungry. He was waiting for a meal to be prepared. He had a vision about food. And here Peter again is, well, we know he's a seer of visions based on Acts chapter 10, for example. And so he thinks he's seen a vision. Who are we to say is wrong? He thinks he's seen a vision. Um, he is um, facing execution, and he has a vision about rescue. How poignant would that be to uh, have a dream, a vision of rescue the night before his execution? And so Peter is very much in the dark. But sometimes... God's servants get to see what God is doing. One of my favorite uh, stories uh, as a child was Second uh, uh, Kings chapter 6. The Arameans have surrounded Dothan, where Elisha and his servant are, and the servant is uh, full of fear. And Elisha tells the servant, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he can see that other army. Who's with us? It's you and me, Elijah. I'm not seeing it. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. God was present. God was equipped. God was ready to work, but the servant of God couldn't see that, or at least the servant of Elisha couldn't see that. Verse 18 says, as the Arameans came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Peter is having one of those moments, like Elisha's servant, in a sense, had the veil pulled back. So Peter, in this moment, is having that sort of experience. In verse 11, it says, then Peter came to himself and said, well, here's Peter having this moment. He discovers what's going on, and he launches into a soliloquy in the street of Jerusalem. 
But that's the third time that Luke is telling us that Peter doesn't know what's going on here. He wasn't aware of it. He thought he was seeing a vision, and now he's come to himself. What does it mean to come to yourself? Uh, it's not really an impressive journey, uh, but it, it, in one sense, it's, it's, it's meaningful here. He's come to himself. It's not a phrase I would use. Uh, I've come to myself. Um, one translation renders it, he came to his senses. And I thought, yeah, that captures it pretty well, because I think we know what that means. Have you ever come to your senses? Maybe the point of the sermon is you need to come to your senses. Uh, not too long ago, we, well, it was when we had our previous car, it was getting old, and the, the top of it was starting to lose its, um, its, its tone. The, the top was starting to, to crumble, really, in the sun. And so I started to investigate products to restore paint, and I started to look at wax, for example. And, you know, you look at wax, and then you think, yeah, I can do a bit better than that. So you start to look at better waxes. And pretty soon I was looking at three and $400 tins of wax for my old crumbling car. And in a moment, I came to my senses and said, no, this is dumb. And I decided not even to clean the car. <laughs> That's coming to your senses. That's one form of coming to your senses. But there's another one that I think is a bit more uh, um, significant and might relate to this. Um, when I was 18 years old, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, we have uh, pretty uh, uh, distinct winters, and it was December, a uh, very wintry day, and I can remember, uh, just in an extraordinary way, I have this, this memory burnt into me of this extraordinary field of white, and this feeling of peace like I'd never felt before, and maybe have never felt since, this extraordinary sense of peace as I just surveyed this field of white. And then I became aware out of my, the corner of my left eye of this, this rhythmic appearance of red, just this tap, tap, tap of red, red circles corner of my eye. And it was just beautiful on this, this field of white. It was you know, abstract art. And um, then I became aware of, well, sounds, of agitated sounds, sort of in, in the background. And I was so calm and relaxed. I had to figure out what was going on with these sounds. And then I became aware, and this is where it gets weird, that I was lying on top of a woman who was trying to get out from under me. So what was happening here, you might ask? <laughs> so December of my 18th year, I had been uh, running, and um, that day I had a bit of discomfort, and I had been taken to the hospital, where it was soon to be revealed that I had a collapsed lung. And the way they discovered this was they put me against an, an upright x-ray machine, and it had a tray about right here. And as I stood there and they said, expand your lungs so we can get this picture, I had passed out, and on the way down, my head hit the, the tray, and I had a bit of a cut in my head. And this poor little x-ray technician saw it happening and tried to catch me on the way down. And so she was lying there. And as I lay there, uh, coming back to consciousness, I first became aware of this blood dripping on the white hospital floor out of the corner of my eye. And then I heard the sounds of people rushing around like they do in hospitals when there's a moment like this happening. And then I became aware of this woman trying to get out from under me so she could do her job, I guess. That is what it means when you come to your senses. The sight, 
the, the hearing, the consciousness. And that's something like what Peter was experiencing. He is coming to his senses. The senses kind of click on one at a time. And he discovers the reality of the situation that he's in. And it's not a dream. It's not a vision. He is standing outside in the streets of Jerusalem, having been rescued by the living God. God had been at work. And Luke has told us three times already that Peter didn't know what was happening to him. He thought it was anything but that. But now he's come to his senses. And verse 12, in case you've missed the point, Luke says, when this had dawned on him. So four times Luke shows you that Peter doesn't get it in the moment when God is rescuing him. Sometimes God's servants are in the dark, and sometimes God's servants see what God is doing. And this is one of those moments when God is revealing uh, in a profound way to Peter what's going on. But the question, I think, still stands, how can we expect the church to know what God is doing if the person in the midst of God's miraculous activity can't see what God is doing? And so this is a story about, well, last week was about the rescue of Peter. Today we're talking about the rescue of the church. The rescue of the church as they come to understand what God is doing in their midst in answer to their prayers. Now, none of the scholars I mentioned at the outset had the advantage of reading this account after having watched Downton Abbey. And if they had, they might have a very different perspective on the role of a servant girl who comes to answer the door. Now, her job probably isn't to, to, to turn and call to the crowd. And it isn't necessarily even to let the person in. It is just as likely that her role is to go ascertain who's at the door, at the gate, and inform the householder that the guest has arrived. Further, Peter isn't at the door. Some translations kind of obscure this, but Peter isn't said to be at the door. It says that he is at the door of the gate. In other words, there's an outer area where uh, Peter is standing and no doubt knocking. And so we shouldn't assume that her job is to open the door. Hey, it's Peter, everybody, as though it's the neighbor who's come to borrow a cup of sugar. Um, none of this would have happened, of course, if Peter had brought his mobile phone. But I want to consider her response. What I like about her response, whatever we decide about what her actual role is, is that she was prepared to believe. She hasn't seen Peter, and yet she is firm in her conviction that their prayers, the prayers that they have been praying, have been answered. And even when the church stands against her and says, no, they haven't, she continues to insist that God has heard their prayers and answered them in the person of Peter. So how does the church respond? Well, she goes in and reports, as I suspect she was intended to do, Peter's at the gate. Peter's outside. They're in a secure environment, a secure location in the face of all the difficulties that Jerusalem is promising them. And uh, the servant girl has ascertained that it's Peter based on his voice. And she goes back and reports that it's Peter. Peter is at the gate. And their first words are, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. There's a natural explanation for what's going on here. Perfectly obvious, you're insane. The second one is, of course, the supernatural explanation. 
it's not Peter, it's his angel. Because she's insisted, no, it really is Peter, so they say it's his angel. So there's a natural explanation, and there's a supernatural explanation. The one thing we can be sure of is that Peter's in prison, so stop bothering us while we pray that Peter will be released from prison, because we know it's either that you're crazy or his angel is at the door. And I wonder if this isn't exactly the same sort of opposition, same sort of disagreements you're going to meet up with when you proclaim Jesus risen from the dead. You're out of your mind. There might be some supernatural explanation for this, but I'm not buying into what you're selling. That um, second explanation, I think, is particularly weak. Look, I don't know much about angels. Uh, Luke has a fair bit to say about the reality of angels. In this instance, I, I'm sure it's a completely ridiculous response. Verse 7 has taught us that locked doors are no barriers to angels. To see this, whatever it is you think it is, knocking at the external door of the church, to say it's an angel doesn't really make sense in light of the fact that the angel just appears in a cell at will and sets Peter free. Locks are not a problem for angels. So what should we say in this, uh, this encounter? Well, like Peter himself, the church is not seeing the reality of God's deliverance. And Peter eventually had those senses switched on to it. The church is not there yet. So what does the church have? Just like at the empty tomb, it has a woman who's reporting the great thing that God has done. And there's resistance even in the church to this truth. But let's observe for a moment that Luke does not denigrate women. Of all the evangelists, I think he's the most uh, careful uh, to elevate women and find positive roles for them. And I also think that if your goal is to make fun of a person, Luke, Luke doesn't need to name her, to put her name in scripture so that we remember it through the ages. I think what we're seeing here is a woman in a privileged position of reporting what God is doing, who has the first insight into God's incredible rescue plan. And just like that was uh, women at the tomb, so now it is this woman in the church. She's recorded in history, not for her silliness, but for her great privilege. And with her testimony, the church sees a miracle. Peter stands before them, but not until they open the door. So as I conclude, try to wrap things up, let me ask this. What is Acts 12 saying to you today? For some, Acts 12 may be a sharp rebuke, teaching you that you need to trust in God, even if that means showing some courage in the face of social, cultural, or political pressure. For others, it may be a gentle reminder that the terrible crisis you're going through today doesn't mean that God has forgotten about you, or that Jesus has lost, even for a moment, his hold on the throne he is a sovereign king who is Lord over life and death. And I'm sure there's somebody in this room who is suffering with something profound and heavy. And they need to know that Jesus is still Lord, even in that crisis. For all of us, Acts 12 is God's word, able to sink deep within us so that in the language of Ephesians 6, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. 
What's Acts 12 saying to you today? Let's pray. Father, we again ask that you would equip us to be faithful servants, those who persevere to the end because we are equipped with your truth, a truth that allows us to see beyond what our eyes reveal to us and to live lives of hope and trust, not undone by the concerns of this world. We pray as we live and serve like this that Jesus would be glorified and his power would be made known. So we pray it in his name. Amen.